Hello and welcome to Script to Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mercedes K. Milner, and I am so glad to be back for my summer break. I would love to say that I spent the entire time relaxing, catching up on some shows, reading random books, and while that did happen a little bit, I have this problem where whenever I find myself with free time, I feel the need to fill that time with work because if I'm not doing something, it feels like I'm flushing valuable time down the toilet. I will give you the skinny on a couple of things I did manage to do. I finally finished my Christmas copy of My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyunkin Braithwaite. So good! And literally just yesterday finished The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It was devastating and magnificent, and it was also my first time reading a Toni Morrison book, which is insane to me. Um, but yeah, I will definitely be reading more of her stuff. I finally finished my first playthrough ever of Night in the Woods. I'm a little late to that party, but video games aren't usually the first thing I go for when I'm looking for something like relaxing or extracurricular to do, but I will say that Night in the Woods was about as me a game as I think games could get. So I'm very glad that I played it and I think I will be playing more video games in the future. Also, I managed to get through Loki, the Fear Street Saga, I watched At Zola, and I'm currently working my way through season two of Twin Peaks, and a YouTube premium show called Wayne. Seriously, if you haven't heard of this show, you are missing out. It's available on Prime as well, so if you don't have YouTube Premium, I don't want to hear it. You need to go and watch Wayne. It is ridiculously good. If you have seen or read or played any of these, please reach out to me and let me know your thoughts. There is so much to be dished about. You can get in touch with me at scriptoscreenpodcast at gmail.com or you can find me at Instagram at mercedes.kali, that's K-H-A-L-I. I would also like to mention some really exciting news. I have been announced as a season one contributing writer to Tales from the Other Side. This is a culturally relevant horror anthology web series created by Gina Yule, and the first season is going to feature stories written by black women that highlight their unique perspectives on present culture. It's a fantastic project, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. Please go follow them everywhere. They're Tales from the Other Side on Facebook and at Tales from the Other Side with a zero for the O on Instagram. Okay, my last big update, I promise. (laughs) The WODC, the parent collective to this podcast, is partnering with Killer Shorts for their third season to aid in amplifying female-identifying and non-binary voices in horror. Members of the Ride or Die Chicks community can gain access to a 50% discount code that can be used on Film Freeway and Coverfly. If this sounds like something you are interested in, please head over to our website, thewodc.com, for more information. I'm definitely going to be submitting. Uh, And they just recently introduced a one-minute horror short that is 
a flat fee of $5. So you can't tell me you can't write one page of spookiness. You could do it. Now, with all the updates out of the way, we can get into what we'll be talking about today. A little Pixar number about an old man and a flying house. But wait, there's more. This episode, I'm joined by my dear friend and fellow WODC co-founder, Angela M. Thomas. I love Anne. She's amazing. She has some really awesome perspectives when it comes to writing. And I think you will really enjoy our conversation. So sit back, relax, and listen in as we talk through this amazing piece of cinema. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Pixar's Up with Angela M. Thomas. Thank you, Ange, for joining me on this very special episode of Up. This was actually the first animated script I've read. Yes, me too. And you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I have a few questions for you. I'm going to start mm-hmm. off with the first one. Up is just one style of the expansive animation genre. As you know, there's lots of different kinds. Are there any animated shows or films that you've seen past or present that you think listeners should be tuning into right now? And also, what is your favorite? kind of animation? I think because I was a kid and now I'm surrounded by kids, I love wholesome animation, like anything everybody can watch, the whole family. So that just naturally became my type of animation. I can't say what type of animation style is my favorite. It's just, it all comes down to story for me. So Mm -hmm. when I'm thinking of past or present, it really comes down to Toy Story. It really started it all for me. And I grew up with those movies. They just really resonated with me because when you're younger, you go through different changes and you have to grow up. And Toy Story grew up with me, so it talked to me at different stages in my life. And now the kids in the house are growing up with it too. And I can see they're they're all all connecting to it the same way I did when I was younger. And it's it's just really nice to see. Another movie that everybody just needs to watch because it's amazing is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh my God, yes! I yes. love that <laughs> Yeah, because I I don't know at that time if I wasn't tuning into as much animation or not. But when that movie came out, I just knew I had to watch it. I'm like, this looks amazing. I have to see it. Mm -hmm. And then it was amazing. And I got sunflower stuck in my head for ages. It'll just stay there forever. (laughs) I just, I love it. I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then those are two films I've actually been tuning into one tv show on my own like that's the one thing i i'm watching by myself it's called cells at work and it's very timely because it basically personifies the cells in your body the characters their personalities are all based on the roles different cells play in your body so you have red blood cells white blood cells stuff like that so i've been learning about the immune system and how the body fights off viruses in a very fun and entertaining way. It's really nice. I'm actually remembering stuff I probably learned back in high school and college, but it's actually sticking with me now. And I was like, this is this is really interesting. And I'm really happy that I'm watching this, just the education and the entertainment value of it all. Where are you watching that? That's on Netflix. The first season oh. is on Netflix. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to give that a listen. Sells <laughs> at work. And that's C-E-L-L-S? Yes, it is. Oh, great. Okay. All right, I'm down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for those recommendations. You're welcome. So Mm -hmm. is there anything that you've read recently 
that you think has either informed or inspired your writing? Managing my time is the hardest thing for me. And I happen to get a gift and it's the ride of a lifetime. Lessons learned from 15 years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. It's Robert Eider's book. Oh. Yeah. And it's, it was, it's just coincidence that it also happens to be Disney related, mm-hmm. but yeah, I doubt that it's, it's about leadership, but everything that's said in the book can be applied to just managing your own life, managing different things in your life. And it's, it helps me remember, it's like, yes, I might not be able to control a lot of things, but I can manage certain aspects of my own life. And if I work hard at it, I can make progress in the things I want to do and uphold the things I want. It's been helping me to remember like the importance of if I want to do something, how there are opportunities and processes to get to those goals. Wow. I'll have to take a look at that. But that's really great. I I also have issues with time management. I'm sure there are people listening that that have that as well. I think it's like a capstone of being a writer is that time management is always going to be a struggle. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Thank you for that. So Pixar obviously tells stories a different way. What is it for you about Pixar's approach to animation that really resonates the most? And how can you steal that and put it into your own work? It's definitely emotions because they lure you in with something wholesome and comedic and then gut punch you with emotions out of nowhere. So they have a way of making stories really personal and universal at the same time. And it's by building a story around a certain emotion and building the themes off of that. So growing up, dealing with loss, it's all about that. And they do it so well that you don't notice they're doing it unless you analyze it. The first thing that comes to me when I'm writing a story, it's rarely an emotion. It's it's usually a character or a scene popped into my head. But I notice that if you start a story with an emotion, the themes naturally build around it and build mm. off of it. And you don't lose sight of the meaning of your story or how everything connects. So I think that's really important. And that's why Pixar movies really resonate with people. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. It's more about complicated emotions. It's not just base level, sad or angry. It's it's always just something that like is hard to describe or put into words. Like mm-hmm. the emotions as you feel them, not as you necessarily describe them. Yeah. I love that, Ange. <laughs> Lastly, is there any writing wisdom that you'd like to impart to listeners, regardless of the stage of their journey? Think of writing as working out. Think of embracing the struggle that you need to get stronger and build your writer muscles. Inspiration may come to you every minute of the day, but if you don't have the willpower to put pen to paper and keep struggling and getting everything out, you're not going to progress. So that's That's my great perspective to have. (laughs) A super great perspective to have. I I completely agree. It is hard. I think one of the hardest things about writing is like building a regular practice, and it's the same with working out. It's Mm -hmm. building a regular practice. And it's, it's sometimes it's going to feel like you're doing all this work for nothing. Like I, I constantly, I've been building a workout practice, like an actual physical workout practice. And it's just like, sometimes I look in the mirror, I'm like, is anything changing? Yeah. <laughs> Am I getting stronger? I don't know. But it's just like the fact that you're doing it, it's one, one day you're going to 
turn back and look at your progress and be like, wow, (laughs) there has been a lot of changes and I am better for all the work that I did when I thought nothing was happening. Yeah. (laughs) But it may not be a sits pad, but you'll be toned and be good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Take note, listeners. Okay. I think if you're ready, we can move on into the script. Yes. (laughs) Beginning with the page one breakdown. The 1930s newsreel. Movie Town News presents Spotlight on Adventure. The mysterious South American jungle, a massive waterfall, cascades down in a gigantic flat top mountain. What you are now witnessing is footage never before seen by civilized humanity. A lost world in South America. Lurking in the shadow of majestic Paradise Falls, it sports plants and animals undiscovered by science. Who would dare set foot on this inhospitable summit? A painted portrait of a dashing young adventurer. Why, our subject today, Charles Muntz. A massive dirigible descends on an airfield. The beloved explorer lands his dirigible, the spirit of adventure, in New Hampshire this week, completing a year-long expedition to the lost world. Interior movie theater continuous. Of everyone watching in the modest small-town theater, no one is more enthralled than eight-year-old Carl Friedrichsen. This lighter-than-aircraft was designed by Munson himself and is longer than 22 Prohibition paddy wagons placed end-to-end. Young Carl stares, mouth agape, wearing leather flight helmet and goggles, just like his idol on the silver screen. And here comes the adventurer now! <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I really tried with my transatlantic accent. So I think right off the bat, there's a level of nostalgia there. Maybe it doesn't touch our generation, but you've definitely seen enough older movies to know like, wow, this is an era. Like we're we're seeing a very specific snapshot of time. I I rarely get nostalgia for times I didn't live through, but as soon as I was reading this page, I could feel it. I could, I was like, yeah, I know exactly what this is. (laughs) Immediately when you're reading it, you feel like you're the kid in the theater, like, wow, adventure. I just love the energy of this page. It's great. This introduction helps to clue the audience into the adventure ahead. We're getting really hyped up. We may not be viewing the exploits of Charles Muntz, but the imagery described on the page paints a picture of what we'll be in for for the rest of this story. There's exotic landscapes, there's danger, there's thrills. We wouldn't be getting all this imagery if we weren't going to see it eventually. So after that first page, I feel like I'm hooked and I want to read more. Yes, yes. (laughs) Okay, onward to act one, which I titled, A Single Blue Balloon. I happened upon this really cool video Beginnings setting a story in motion. It features Michael Arndt, who is the screenwriter for Toy Story 3, and he explains the process for beginnings based on what he's learned during his time at Pixar. I wanted to try something different with the structure of this first act breakdown and just kind of follow through and pinpoint the moments that he outlines 
for the criteria for a Pixar worthy beginning. But I will say this because he emphasized this in his video. It's not a formula. It's just, this is how story flows, <laughs> mm -hmm. at least in Pixar land. So first we need to take a pause and keep our eyes on page one because Arndt describes that when we meet our main character, we want to see them doing the thing they love the most or their grand passion. So I think in the case of young Carl, we can see that he's clearly got an eye for adventure. I feel like for Carl, that's going to be his grand passion through life. But maybe he has a very skewed perspective of what adventure is supposed to be. Like, that's the core of the movie. I agree. He's idolizing an idol. <laughs> and he's <laughs> he's seeing it as something shiny and amazing. So he's seen it with rose-tinted glasses. He's seen everything mm -hmm. as, as amazing. But he doesn't know the real world. He doesn't see the actual machinations that it takes to go on an adventure. It's something they establish so quickly. By the bottom of the first page, you already know, like, bam, this is going to be our main character. And this is going to be his great passion in life, his adventure. Mm -hmm. And so as we move forward further into the first act, we get acquainted with the main character's world. So we're seeing kind of small town America in the 1930s which is the farthest you could possibly be from the crazy jungles of South America and Paradise Falls. This is a setting we can easily conceptualize. The writer doesn't need to go into too much detail. The real details shine through when we meet Ellie. Interior dilapidated house, living room, continuous. Carl rounds the corner to see Ellie, an eight-year-old girl, her mussy red hair barely visible beneath her flight helmet and goggles. Barefooted, her overalls are patched and dirty. The old house has been transformed into a make-believe dirigible cockpit. Ellie steers, the wheel made from a rusty old bicycle. It's a beautiful day. Winds out of the east at 10 knots. Visibility unlimited. Enter the weather in the logbook. The navigator, her hamster, steers in its cage. When we meet Ellie, her introduction into Carl's life is a new form of adventure. Like right off the bat, you could tell, like he thought he knew what adventure was. But then he met this girl and it's just like, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he may have liked the idea of adventure, but she likes the action of adventure. <laughs> and it's definitely uncharted territory for him. But I think she also introduces the idea of staying accountable for one's dreams. In this case, they have the shared dream of, of being adventurous and going on these wild crazy adventures how many times am I gonna say adventure in <laughs> oh we're gonna say it a lot we're gonna say it a lot for sure <laughs> referring back to Arndt's breakdown he he describes that the main character needs a flaw that stems from their grand passion it's an example of too much of a good thing and in Carl's case I think is that he loves the idea of adventure so much that the thought of a life without it means he'll be subjected to a life unfulfilled. And I think that's relatable, but I also think it goes deeper. His perspective of what real adventure is, is skewed. Ellie's just reminds me of adventure personified. It's like, yeah. Ellie is an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Once we've established kind of what their sticking point is going to be, Next, we get the storm clouds on the horizon, which is like things are going well. 
you're really loving life. And why would we ever want to leave this first act? This is great. Hmm. <laughs> and we're building up to a big shakeup in the status quo. So this is kind of like we're moving towards the inciting incident. And Carl's case, I think it's when he realizes that him and Ellie are approaching their twilight years. They're getting older. They've never made it to Paradise Falls. And he's starting to think, oh, my God, we're not getting any younger. We've got to go. And the fear of not living up to that cross your heart promise is really starting to haunt him. But then, of course, with every storm comes the strike of lightning, which is Ellie's sickness and eventual death. I need to know, Ange, how did you feel watching this movie for the first time, seeing that (laughs) moment like she did not just die? It was so traumatizing. (laughs) (laughs) That that. That montage sequence made this movie famous because I thought I remembered this movie, but the the detail that stayed with me the most is that montage of her dying, or her life, and then eventual death. And I was just like, how did you do this to us? I was like, there are children in this theater. I was like, well, but it doesn't matter. There are adults in this theater. How did you do this to me? I was like, that had my record for making me cry the earliest in a movie for mm. like the longest time. It might still hold the record. I think it's interesting that you say that because I hadn't seen Up since it came out before we read it for the podcast and screened it. And the only thing that I could remember was that montage. I couldn't remember anything else about the movie, (laughs) but that montage. And it's so true what you say. That is the earliest hands down I've ever cried (laughs) I'm just like, where are we going to go from here? Where, Where could we possibly go? It's like there was a short film on its own. And I was like, mm-hmm. you mean I'm supposed to see through my tears and keep going after this? Why would you make me do this? That makes you feel like you're at the possible lowest point of your life. What really baffles me is just like, how did I become so attached to this person that I was mourning their death after knowing them for like 10 minutes? Yes. We were going through it with Carl. We we mm-hmm. got to know Ellie. We went through her entire life and we lost her with the character. And it was like this, we can't handle that loss. It's just yeah. amazing. That's the level of writing that I aspire to. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, if I can make someone cry in my film within the first 15 minutes, then obviously I'm doing something right. But beyond that, you think that's the lowest possible point, but... After the strike of lightning happens, your character is down in the dirt, but now they need to be kicked in the stomach, which is unfortunate, (laughs) but it has to happen because they really have to understand, like, you're not staying here. (laughs) You're moving on with your life. And so for Carl, that ends up being when he has that big explosive moment over his house, because at this point, he's lost Ellie and the only real tangible thing he has holding them two together is the house. And that house is their history. That's where they met. So the idea of not being in the house, I guess, is something that's just unfathomable. And he's at a certain age now where it's just like, it it makes the most sense to go to an old folks home. But I don't know. How do you say goodbye to a home like that? Yeah, because I think it's different in modern times. But back in the past, you could be born in your home and also die in that same home. You never had to leave your home if you're thinking for far enough back in the past. But if you're thinking modern days, that's very, very rare and basically unheard of. But it's like thinking thinking you would never have to leave your home 
is comforting, but being confronted with the idea that you really do have to let go of your memories and your life and everything that that is kind of terrifying and heartbreaking. A large truck is backing up, getting dangerously close to Ellie's mailbox. Okay, keep her coming and stop, stop, stop. The truck hits Ellie's mailbox, crushing the front. Carl is shocked. He runs to the box. What? Hey, hey you, what do you think you're doing? I'm so sorry, sir. The worker bangs on the mailbox, trying to fix it. Don't touch that. No, no, let me take care of that for you. Carl grabs the mailbox, trying to wrestle it from the worker. Get away from our mailbox. Hey, sir, I, I don't want you to touch it. Carl hits the worker with his cane. He falls to the sidewalk. The worker rubs his head. Blood. Carl bats up towards his door, cradling his mailbox. What has he done? Passerby stare. Workers gather, as does the real estate developer. Carl bats into his house. So I just think that that scene by itself was just so heart-wrenching because you know that he didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, you could, and you could see how hungry the real estate developer was. Yes. It's just like, uh-huh, this is basically my property now. Like, I've got you in the back. He's so, they're so scary. <laughs> I know. The real estate developer, this is another point that I wanted to bring up is that the animation styles, the, the distinct differences between what Carl looks like, kind of rugged and boxy, and then just how alien sleek those developers look is so weird and creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you grew up with sci-fi, if you see too many people dressed in the same black suit walking towards you and they're pale, you did you did naturally just creeped out. You're like, oh no, it's one of them again. Yeah. <laughs> so past that, we have the fork in the road. Now Carl's in a position that, okay, he's lost his battle. He's going to lose his house. They're coming for him tomorrow to take him to the old folks' home. And... There's two directions your character can go in this instance. You can either choose to accept defeat or you could decide to leave that all behind and make an irresponsible decision and kick us off into the adventure that's going to lead us into the rest of the movie. And the one thing that always comes up for me during these crossroads is just like you, when you think of your crossroads, just think about like, do I want this movie to end right now or do I want it to continue on? Because if they choose the boring route, movie's over <laughs> yes <laughs> therefore you have to you have to push us onto the more irresponsible route and the irresponsible route here is the most gorgeous thing i've ever seen in animation yes a shadow falls over the nurses they turn to look a giant tarp rises behind carl's house it unfolds to reveal thousands of balloons the balloons rise up like some massive multicolored cumulus cloud, forming a thunderhead above the house. Strings tug at the chimney. The house strains. Pipes bend, then break. Electrical wires spark and snap. The house rips away from its foundation. The nurses duck and yell as the house soars over them. Carl looks out the window and laughs. So long, boys. I'll send you a postcard from Paradise Falls. And just like that, we are headed into Act 2. Which I titled, Adventure is Out There. Yes. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to take a moment to talk about the idea of spectacle in animation. 
when you're writing in this style, you are given the unique opportunity to do literally whatever you want. You can go big, you can go bold, you can obviously with up go physics defying because please don't try to do that with your house. I don't think the balloons hold. But with that said, I think you should also remember that you have to make it believable. It doesn't need to be realistic to be believable. And I think that's something that Pixar does extremely well. I think when you're thinking about animation scripts and you're doing it in your own work, please don't you dare write something that could just as easily be live action feature or series. You need to write with intention and animation scripts are no different. You need to go as big as possible because the sky is literally the limit. There is no budget telling you we can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. I hear script writers say that time and time again, that they, the script that got them the job or the, the script that became something is when they didn't show any restraint. They, they just put everything in it. It's like, maybe they'll never shoot that. Maybe that'll never make the screen, but they know where you're coming from. They see your story as you intended it. Now we're into the second act. And the first thing that we really need to do is to commit to the quest. So in this stage of the story, we're committing in a sense of like the character knows that it's not too late to turn back, could easily just be like, you know what? This is a stupid idea. Like <laughs> 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 on second thought. <laughs> Why do I think I can fly my little house to Paradise Falls with these balloons? Um, <laughs> let me find a field to land in. But we're not going to do that because we just went over this problem. That means the movie's over and we don't want it to end yet. For me, I don't know how to fly a house. So as soon as he was up there, I I wouldn't have known how to land or where it was safe to land. So for me, just the act of taking the leap would mean I'm not going back. It's like, yeah, because if he if he stops, he's really giving up his life. He's really giving up his home. And it's not that it's being taken from him. He's He would be the one literally giving it up. So I would refuse to quit because I don't want to surrender. I would keep going. I agree with you. The forethought he put into this was the committing to the quest. But of course, this can only last so long. For a moment, he's in paradise. But then we start to move into like the trailer bait section. Like these are all the moments that you see in the trailers. And it begins with a knock. Exterior Carl's house porch day continuous. Nothing. He looks left. Nothing. He looks right. Russell. He looks Russell. Hi, Mr. Friedrichson. It's me, Russell. What are you doing out here, kid? Russell is plastered up against the wall, terrified and holding on for dear life. I found the snipe and I followed it under your porch, but this snipe had a long tail and looked more like a large mouse. The flat on Russell's backpack blows off and falls through the clouds. Please let me in. No. Carl slams the door, leaving Russell alone. (laughs) Russell's just so sweet. If it had been me, I would have pushed past well before. (laughs) I would be like, you're going to let me into this house. Yeah, it's like, look here, old man. It's like, we're, <laughs> this is happening one way, and I'm coming in. <laughs> Can you see the parallels, Ange, between young Russell and young Carl? They're basically the same. Mm-hmm. They're just so hungry for adventure. And I think even though Russell is probably the absolute last person that Carl wants along for the trip, he's the best foil character imaginable for Carl along this journey because 
He's the literal embodiment, kind of in the way that Ellie was for Carl. Like he's the embodiment of adventure, like adventure personified, like you said. And Carl has lost that over the course of a lifetime, especially after losing Ellie. I agree. Yeah, because Russell's just innocent and he's he's optimistic. He's looking forward to everything. He he just wants everything in life to be an adventure and he's he's working towards that. And then Carl. Carl is more, he's running away. He's running away in a sense and chasing his adventure, but he's hes lost a lot of the reasons as to why he's doing it. He's Now he's doing it more as like fulfilling an oath. And mm-hmm. for Russell, it's just like, it's magical still. Adventure is still magical. And Carl needs to get that back again. He so does. Once we start to get into this area, we start to see the obstacles coming one after the other. It's like the rise up, on the mountain and you're hitting one obstacle after another what I really love about the Russell obstacle is because it's the lowest stake possible it's just like okay I'm on my journey and now I just have this really annoying person with me (laughs) (laughs) which is great because when you start that low with your stakes you can build 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 until they go out of control crazy once we get to page 29 interior Carl's house living room continuous so this is the scene where the crazy storm comes in and completely ruins the already slightly ruined plans so one thing I think is incredibly important to note is that we're seeing a prime example of action and consequence writing so prior to this thing blowing up in in Carl's face Russell's explaining to Carl about cumulonimbus clouds and how they signal storms But because Carl found the sound of Russell's voice so annoying and he turned off his hearing aid, he completely missed the warning. And now the storm is causing it so that we can't turn back and return Russell back home. Like we're locked into the adventure. (laughs) Yeah. When we transition to being back on land, the writer introduces something absolutely key to the second act, which is a time clock. It's something that you definitely, definitely need. You may not think you need it, but you do need it. A thing can go on forever if you don't have, if time isn't of the essence. And then a ticking clock, I watch a lot of action movies. So you actually get the literal ticking clock where it's like something's counting down, something's going to blow up or something like that. <laughs> it's It helps keep everything in perspective. If something needs to happen by a certain time, the movie is going to propel itself towards that no matter what. The unique time clock here was that they only have three days to get to the other side of Paradise Falls and land the house on the correct spot. The good news is we made it. We're yeah. in South America somehow. <laughs> I would take the win, honestly. I'd be like, yeah. yes, good enough. <laughs> I'm just like, and why do you want to be on the side of the falls where you can't see them? Like you're sitting <laughs> next to them, but you don't get the view of them. <laughs> but this was Ellie's dream. Yes. <laughs> So now we have the time clock and the way I saw it, I was like, it's a life or death type of situation because if the house falls and they're standing underneath it, trying to pull it along, they're going to get crushed. For him, this is the last big event of his life. And before it was an unreachable dream is something he didn't want to do by himself. And now that he's so close, he can't stop now. He has to keep going. So now we've got our time clock established. Moving on, we have to talk about the reintroduction of a plot point that could have easily been forgotten, which is Charles Muntz's quest for redemption. 
this was something that was established like within the first five pages that he was sent back to South America because they thought that he was a fraud, the skeleton he brought back. By this point, you're just like, so much has happened. My emotions have been put through the ringer. Yeah. How am I supposed to remember that Charles Muntz was anything? But it is the story point that did go unfinished. You can't introduce things like that if you're not going to tie them up in a little bow by the end. Make everything nice and neat. Page 37, exterior mountain jungle clearing day. Mist hangs ominously over a rocky landscape. Something tall blasts through a maze of rocks. Two dark shapes are chasing the prey. Each has a light. Hunters. Exterior mountain, grove of trees continuous. The prey dodges various traps, one after another. A metal cage slams shut, a hidden net darts on a tripwire. The prey runs into a clearing surrounded by rocks, a dead end. Exterior mountain clearing continuous. The hunters surround the prey, stepping out into the light. A sinister Doberman pincer, a Rottweiler, and a bulldog, each wearing large, high-tech collars. They surround the prey. Escape looks impossible. Whoosh. The bird moves impossibly fast, jumping over the three dogs and escaping in a flash. The dogs head off in pursuit. A high-pitched squeal stops the dogs short. Their ears wincing in pain. They whimper and run off. So here's the thing, and I have to admit to you, I realized how wrong I was. <laughs> what? I thought, I was like, there's no way that Charles Munns would still be alive. <laughs> I didn't even do the math. They don't specify how old he is in the movie movie. Like, mm-hmm. or they don't specify the time j- jump as much as they do in the script. But maybe he <laughs> found some, like mystical plants and it's been keeping him alive longer i don't know (laughs) and once again it's just like it doesn't have to be realistic just believable Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. the dogs are really the clue that tells us that charles Muntz is back into the story and because of the high-tech collars which is something that he established way back in the 30s but at this point in the story if you're the writer it's probably challenging to figure out exactly where the side plot needs to rejoin the narrative since it was mentioned so long ago. It's not even exactly at the forefront of people's minds, but I think if you were to continue on and leave this a mystery at the end of the script, even if we as readers can't exactly pinpoint why, like even if we did forget that Charles Muntz never came back from trying to redeem himself, it would feel unfinished. Like the story would not feel complete somehow. That goes along with giving your audience more credit is that like people can sense when a story is not done. Yes. Yeah. It's like it's inception all the time. Like the end of that movie. It's like, (laughs) wait, wait a minute. Wait, we're not done here yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I I really don't think Up is trying to have an inception type ending. (laughs) Yeah. It's like whatever happened to Charles Muntz. (laughs) I think the choice to reintroduce this narrative here really works because we can tell that Carl and Russell have just come to Paradise Falls and obviously that's going to put Charles Muntz his radar on high as like who the hell are these new people in my mm-hmm. area of the world yeah it's all about location their their mm-hmm. stories meet because of the location it's all where they want to be or need to be yeah and I don't think there was an earlier point that we could have seen this character again. I don't think there was an earlier point that would have worked better. I think this is the exact right position. 
Yes, I agree. So think about it. I think just like thinking about it as like tying things together. What's the common denominator between these two that would allow the the points to meet? So the common denominator, as you said, is the the location. Before we weren't even in a position to think about Charles Muntz because we were nowhere near where he is. But now that we're in his territory, we can kind of reacclimate ourselves to this mysterious man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the center of your second act, there's usually a twist a midpoint twist that's just like you think that things are going on a steady pace and your character is starting to learn things that's helping them to progress in the story and maybe things are getting just a little bit too easy for them to conquer so that's when you need to do another big shake up and in this one I titled it never meet your heroes because honestly what oh, the yes. heck <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I'm not gonna have heroes I'm just not gonna have them I was like nope <laughs> nope one of the things that I found so interesting about Muntz's perspective is that if this were his movie, he wouldn't be a villain. And I think that's such a great thing to put into practice when you're forming your antagonist is just like, if we were watching their story, they would not be the villain. They mm-hmm. would be the protagonist because they think that their perspective, their journey is just being cut off by whoever's coming into their circle so that just happens to be carl at this time it's the wicked approach like if we would see the movie from his perspective we would probably understand where he's coming Mm -hmm. from we might not agree with everything but we would understand but unfortunately for him we're in carl's movie and he is the villain so we can't we can't side with him right now and it's not even as if his main goal is without weight like he was completely humiliated his legacy was torn to shreds all he's trying to do is redeem himself by any means necessary because it's just like he can't die being called a fraud Mm -hmm. it's just like i totally see where you're coming from but you still can't murder people (laughs) yeah it's like sir you you're crossing the line what brings these two together it turns out that russell has made an acquaintance with the one thing that is going to put charles Muntz back on the map which is Kevin, or this weird exotic bird. Yes, a snipe. So after that, you kind of get, you get this twist, and that kind of sets the characters behind, not just like physically behind, but mentally behind as well, as we see with Carl. He kind of gets this reverse mindset, like, what am I doing going on this adventure trying to save this stupid bird? Like, I came here for one purpose and one purpose only, and I got sidetracked trying to have a heart or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he's like it's like this this journey was about me ellie in my house russell came into my story didn't invite him and then now i have a big old bird that i have to mm-hmm. go save what is this and yeah. this adorable dog <laughs> yeah it that does. just wants to be loved <laughs> so that kind of thinking ultimately leads to the big fall or some people call this like the dark night of the soul where you're just like okay let me take a moment and look inward Let's see what's really going on. Interior Carl's house living room continuous. Carl and Ellie's things are strewn across the floor, a mess from the rough journey. Carl rides Ellie's chair, sets the lamp upright, slides the table into position. He pushes their two chairs back into their place. Carl closes his eyes, takes deep breath and sits, quiet. Nothing, save the distant sound of the falls outside. Carl surveys the room. The adventure book rests on a table near him. He opens it and puts Ellie's drawing back. 
He looks through the pages, remembering the newspaper clippings and old photographs, the dreams of young Ellie. He turns to the page marked stuff I'm going to do. Carl sighs. He managed to bring the house to the falls, but Ellie never made it. He closes the book, but as he does, Carl sees something he hadn't before. The blank pages at the end are no longer blank. A wedding photo of the two of them. On a picnic, celebrating birthdays, another and another, photos of their ordinary life together, the ups and downs. Carl's face warms. Ellie lived the life she wanted. She saw adventure in everyday life. A photo of the two of them sitting side by side together in their chairs. Beneath it, Ellie has written, thanks for the adventure. Now go have a new one. Love, Ellie. And I cried all over again. <laughs> yes, it's what we needed. We're like, oh, Ellie, thank you again. Even in death, she is the only person that can set Carl right. Yeah, but it just, it also tells you, it's like, his loss hit her so hard. He he didn't, he couldn't look at that book again. It's like, you thought he would have seen that relatively soon, maybe when she gave it to him, but he probably didn't have the strength to look at it again till now. And he discovered what he needed to know exactly when he, when he needed it. I think that does speak to one of the major themes of this movie is like how grief can affect you. So usually after the character, the protagonist has this, this moment, they have the realization that they need to get back on the horse or strap their house back on (laughs) (laughs) and go off and save the day. And at this point, we've got the added suspense of Russell just decided to take a few balloons and a leaf blower and go save Kevin (laughs) by himself. I was like, that is a boy scout for me right there. Because I was like, I couldn't have figured that out. (laughs) Yeah. So the ride up to the the climax is pretty wild. We have the dirigible chase, which is like the dirigible versus Carl's house. And then we have the fetch diversion. We have Russell hanging from the house while the canine fighter pilots shoot poisonous darts at the house, which was really insane and so imaginative. Like whose idea was that to have a squeaky toy be the, the shooting buttons? Like I just, wow. They're like, probably like, do you have a dog? Yeah. What's your dog have? It's like uh, a squishy toy. It's like, it's in the movie. Got it. Okay. <laughs> then we had the old man sword fight, which was probably the most beautiful thing to see <laughs> on a page ever. I've never seen something more glorious written. Interior dirigible trophy room. Munch swings his sword at Carl, but misses. Carl uses his cane to defend himself. Old man sword fight. Munt smashes his trophy collection as he swings for Carl. His sword gets stuck in a mounted skeleton. Carl swings his cane and hits Munt on the head. The tennis balls bounce the cane off Munt and smack Carl in the face. Munt pulls the sword free. He raises the sword over his head to strike and his back cracks loudly. He's stuck. Carl raises his cane over his head and his back cracks too. Carl and Munt struggle to move. Munt cracks his back free and hits Carl in the chest. Not him against the trophy. He has the upper hand now. He throttles him with his arm and lifts his sword. Any Munt. last words, Fredrickson? Come on, spit it out! Carl spits false teeth at months. He falls backwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful okay. moment. I love that. It's so... It's perfect. It's just, it's great. <laughs> so... 
this sequence, this is a sequence that flows incredibly well and gives every character a slice of the action. And one thing that I want to make a note of here is that while all of these scenes are incredibly action-packed and intense and keep you on the edge of your seat, none of them are the actual climax moment. The real climax moment is embodied by a theoretical tip of a story mountain. My favorite writing teacher, Marie Drennan, um, she would call this the Death Star moment. So this moment is defining and shows our heroes either conquering the major obstacle or facing a sobering loss. In this case, this is the moment where Carl is unsure if he's going to be able to save everyone in the house before the hose snaps. And luckily for him, and unluckily for Charles Muntz, Kevin loves chocolate. When I was reading it, I was having a Tarzan flashback. I was like, oh no, Clayton. But I was like, that was that was traumatizing to a child. It's like, you saw Clayton die in, in silhouette. But for Charles Muntz, he could come back like Jason for all I know. He's already 100. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think we're ready to move on to Act 3, which I titled The Ellie Pin. So after we have the big Death Star moment, the big climax, we have the come down, which I titled Bird Babies and Good Boys Abound. <laughs> That's cute. So the heroes did it. Carl was able to save Russell, Doug, and Kevin. And then they get to reunite Kevin with her little bird babies and it's so cute and I wish I could touch the birds <laughs> <laughs> they probably have those toys somewhere <laughs> I know now he's taken on the spirit of adventure but he also has all of these talking dogs there's a a, a hierarchy because mm -hmm. Doug is the new alpha so they they follow Doug's lead and Doug is a good boy and then, yes <laughs> and Doug follows Carl so it's like it's a nice it's it's nice that way they get to be dogs again not hunters I think at this point we start to feel that like wow Carl found adventure and Russell ultimately helped the elderly and will be earning his new senior explorer status and has an Ellie badge to prove it this is probably where a lot of people get confused about like, oh, the movie's over. Everything's fine. And you technically could end the movie here. It's a good ending point. Everybody got what they wanted or not necessarily what they wanted, but what they needed. They did the work and they got the best results possible for that work. And they're changed now. But it can't end yet because we haven't established any sense of longevity like if we were to end it here we don't really know where the story is going afterward and there's always an afterward is just because we no longer get the window into these these people's lives it doesn't mean they stop living immediately once the credits roll right mm -hmm. yeah it wouldn't be a pixar movie if it ended there <laughs> yeah we need to get a sense that these people are going to go on and they're going to live their lives and they're going to be happy and fabulous <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we get introduced to the what happens after everything happens. After everything, everything possible happens, then what happens? At the end on the page is just beautiful, but then luckily you have the screen version where it really doesn't end there. The credit sequence is also adorable because you get little snapshots of more of what happens after everything happens and how they have their happily ever after and after and after. And it goes on. It's like you get to see more of their lives. 
and Carl stays a part of Russell's life for longer. And it's just, it's nice. It's beautiful. Exterior curb outside Fenton's ice cream parlor day. Carl and Russell sit on a curb licking ice cream cones. Russell has chocolate and Carl has butter brittle. Cars pass by. Blue one. Red one. Gray one. Red one. Russell giggles. That's a bike. It's red, isn't it? Mr. Fredrickson, you're cheating. No, I'm not. Red one. That's a fire hydrant. They laugh. Maybe I need new glasses. Overhead, Munster Dirigible is parked, its ladder in the handicapped parking spot. Dissolve to exterior Paradise Falls afternoon. On top of Paradise Falls sits Carl's house, just as Ellie imagined it. The end. Script to Screen is an original production of the Write or Die Chicks and is hosted, researched, and produced by me, Mercedes K. Milner. If you'd like to know what I'll be reading and screening each month, you can visit our website, thewodc.com, to see my curated list of screenplays for the year. You can also check out the Reading on Writing Book Club if you'd like to read the Screenwriting Book of the Month with me as well. The original theme music for Script to Screen podcast is from Foosh, and all of the additional music used is from Zapsblatt. This episode, I was joined by the amazing Angela M. Thomas, fellow co-founder of the WODC, as well as our social media and branding specialist, and the woman behind the column Lost in Translation on the WODC blog. If you'd like to keep up with her, you can follow her on social media on any of the WODC accounts or check her out on Instagram at 6amthomgirl. For the month of August, join me in reading Super Dark Times by Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski and Michael Tierno's Aristotle's Poetics for Screenwriters. Until then, read something, watch something, and write for your life. <laughs>